0: All right, good morning. Please open your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, Chapter 13. Uh, we are continuing our study of Mark's Gospel, and this morning we, we come to the beginning of our time in the Olivet Discourse. We'll probably be here for the next six to eight weeks in Chapter 13. Uh, and this sermon is going to be a bit different than usual. Um, this sermon is going to set the stage for how I plan to interpret this whole chapter, Uh, and it takes some work. We're not going to work through the entire chapter, about six verses of it we're going to do today, Um, but I'm going to lay the groundwork for how I plan to interpret the whole thing, and I'm just going to keep it real with you. You're going to have to think hard this morning. Christianity is a religion of the mind, and you're going to have to use yours today. Um, Also, and you know if I'm saying this, then it means something, this sermon is probably going to be long, you think aren't they always long? No, not like this. Um, I don't think there's really any way to get around that. Um, I could be wrong, but I think it's probably going to be longer than normal. So prepare to be here for a while. Uh, we are in it for the long haul so that we can properly understand the Olivet discourse. Um, so right, if you got to get up, then get up. Do what you do what you must. Um, also, since this sermon's going to be a bit unusual, we're going to begin by reading the text and then I'll introduce it, and then we'll dive in. So we're going to read the entirety of Mark 13 this morning. So with that said, if you would and are able, please stand with me now for the reading of the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. Gospel of Mark, chapter 13. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations." For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect, but be on guard. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father, awake. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Our great God, we come before you this morning in need of grace. The text before us is difficult, but it is indeed your word. You've given it to us to instruct, warn, encourage, and point us to our Lord Jesus. And so we ask that you by your spirit would grant us insight into the word. Give us sharp minds, open hearts, and faith to receive the scriptures soberly and gladly. Glorify yourself in us as you work in our hearts by your word and by your spirit. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake, amen. You may be seated. All right, now this this chapter is a a famous chapter. It's a very famous passage of scripture and it is also a judgment passage. Now, uh, while it certainly contains some rays of light and encouragement for the people of God, nevertheless... It is predominantly a judgment prophecy from the lips of our Lord Jesus Christ. Not only is it a judgment passage, uh, it's also, if you couldn't guess, one of the toughest texts to interpret in the entire New Testament. It is certainly the most difficult and disputed text to interpret in the Gospels. Not, Not disputed as to its authenticity, but disputed on how to interpret it. Uh, There are many different schools of interpretation with this chapter, and there is much disagreement even among good, godly, faithful men regarding how we should understand the text before us. And I'll tell you straight up, if you didn't notice in the reading, there is some wild language in this chapter, isn't there? Stars falling out of heaven, the sun not giving its light, the moon being darkened. Right, the gospel being preached to all the nations before the end, all that. There's wild language here. And in light of the language that we see in the Olivet Discourse, most people believe that almost all of it has to do with the future history of the world just prior to the second coming of our Lord Jesus. This text is certainly very important. It's very important. And it's full of vivid imagery and difficult language to interpret. Now I'm gonna put my cards on the table. I I have been nervous about getting to this chapter since we started the gospel of mark three years ago i've been terrified right you can ask pastor Stephen. i almost didn't choose the gospel of mark to preach through because i didn't want to deal with this chapter and then i asked myself what are you never going to preach through any of the gospels <laughs> right like that no like you got to deal with it at some point so let's go ahead and do it so please be praying for me as i prepare uh, and teach through this chapter Um, But I've been studying this text off and on for the last two years, right? I've known it was coming. I've had time to prepare. I've read about five books on it. Uh, I've listened to many different lectures, read countless articles, and listened to some sermons on the Olivet Discourse. Uh, What I've been doing is I've been trying to prepare myself for this tough passage so that I can be a blessing to you all and kind of know where I'm going beforehand. Um, And I've spent time thinking about how to interpret the difficult words and imagery found in this text, and wouldn't you know it? I have come to the minority position on this passage. That's always a good time. I've come to the minority position. The vast majority of Bible interpreters, many of whom I have profound respect for, and I mean that, profound respect for, many Bible interpreters would disagree with many things, though not all, but many things that I will be teaching as we go through this chapter. But let me be clear. I don't go searching for novel interpretations of Scripture. I want you to know that. I don't, right? Some people do that because they want to stand out, right? Like, oh, this is that preacher that takes that weird position on that text. That's not what I'm aiming at. Uh, I hate that. I love being able to point at huge lists of people who agree with me, right? It's why I reference the Puritans often for things that I say when you go, really? Um, But if after studying scripture, I'm forced to disagree with the majority, I will. One example of this is the fact that I am a Baptist, right? My flesh wants to be Presbyterian. Right. They make better money. They do, for real. Like, poor Baptists. We're the redheaded stepchildren of the Reformation, all right? We really are. Like, no one wants us. I would, My flesh would rather be Presbyterian, right? And their theological pedig- pedigree is awesome, right? I hate disagreeing with giants like Calvin and Knox and Bovink and Turretin, almost all the Puritans, R.C. Sproul, right? I hate disagreeing with R.C. Sproul. I cried for three days in a row whenever that man passed away in 2017 right? I hate disagreeing with these guys. But I humbly disagree with him on baptism. Why? Because I believe the scripture teaches otherwise. And my conscience is held captive to the word of God and not a theological tradition, no matter how great that tradition may be. I say that to say this. I I want you to know I am being as sincere and honest with the text as I know how to be whenever I teach this minority position on the Olivet Discourse. I'm not trying to stand out as being that weird pastor in Sayota County. I'm already that guy for different reasons, but that's not what I'm trying to do with this. But I have to go where the text leads. And the interpretation that I'm going to set forth to you all is called a partial preterist interpretation. Partial preterism. Now, now most of you are, what is that? I have never heard of preterism, nor have I heard of partial preterism. Well, let me explain what that means. Preterism comes from a Latin word that means past. That's what preter means in Latin. So it's pastism. Simple. Pastism. It simply means that prophecies in the Bible have been fulfilled already. And just so you know, every one of us in this room, to one degree or another, is a preterist. Right? Wow. What do I mean? Well, think of all the Old Testament prophecies about the first coming of Christ. Think of Isaiah 53. Right about the crucifixion of Christ. Think of Psalm 22, or at least the first two thirds of Psalm 22. Right, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Think of Jesus's own prophecy that He gave three times in Mark's gospel about how He would be crucified, die, and come back from the dead. If you believe those have been fulfilled already, then you're a preterist with regard to those prophecies. And if you don't believe those have been fulfilled already, congratulations, you're not a Christian. Right, So if you believe that a certain prophecy has already been fulfilled, then you are a preterist with regard to that particular prophecy. And again, to one degree or another, every Christian is a preterist. It's just on what passages do you believe they've already been fulfilled? But I am a partial preterist, at least with regards to the Olivet Discourse. And that means that I do not believe that every prophecy in Scripture has been fulfilled. There are some that are yet to come to pass, like the second coming of Christ, final judgment, the new heavens and the new earth, things like that, that are to happen at the end of human history. So I don't believe those things have happened yet. They are still yet to be fulfilled. So then, here we go. With regard to the Olivet Discourse in Mark, hang in here with me. I said you're going to have to use your minds. Hang in. Partial preterism means this. Everything that Jesus says in Mark chapter 13 up to verse 32 was fulfilled in the time leading up to and the final destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in 70 A.D. I'll say that one more time. I take the position, a partial preterist position, that says everything up to verse 32 in this chapter was fulfilled in the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. That's my position on this text, and I plan to defend it today and throughout our study of the Olivet Discourse. Now, before we go further, I have to highlight this. Uh, partial preterism is different from full preterism if you google it you will probably find a bunch of websites about full preterism full preterism f-u-l-l should be spelled f-o-o-l right it is a heresy it is a foolish position i don't believe that you can hold this position and be a christian full preterism affirms that jesus already returned (laughs) that the resurrection of the dead already happened and that final judgment all happened in the first century This position is manifestly nonsense, right, to anyone who reads the Bible with a believing heart at all. Full preterism has never been affirmed by the church, ever, right? By the way, if Protestants, Catholics, and uh, Eastern Orthodox all say, yeah, that's not true, then it's not true, right? We don't agree on anything, right? But if everyone comes together and says, yeah, that's not right, then you can be confident that is not right, right? The church has never affirmed full preterism and it is at odds with every historic creed and confession within Christendom. It is a heresy, and I don't believe it. <laughs> I'm a partial preterist, I'm not a full preterist. Now, even though I'm not denying any central truths of the faith, this idea that most of the Olivet discourse was fulfilled in the 1st century is probably weird to most of you, right? Like I can see it on some of your faces. I have your attention because you've never heard this, <laughs> and this seems very weird. So, just real quick, let me give you a list of well-known theologians who, to one degree or another, take the position that I'm going to be teaching. Now, there's small disagreements between them, but overall, they would agree with what I'm going to teach. Here's a list. R.C. Sproul, Greg Bonson, Ken Gentry, Douglas Wilson, Sinclair Ferguson, D.A. Carson, Marcellus Kick, R.T. France, Keith Matheson, Jay Adams, John Gill, Charles Spurgeon, Adam Clark. Jonathan Edwards, John Owen, John Lightfoot, Milton S. Terry, and apparently, these two shocked me, Clement of Alexandria, and John Chrysostom. These are early church fathers took this position. So my point is not to appeal to these men as if I must be right because they agree with me. That's a logical fallacy called an appeal to authority. That's not what we're doing here. Rather, I just want to show you I am not alone on an island with this position. And that many faithful, scholarly, and trustworthy teachers take this position, or at least close to it, right? Even stretching back to the early church. So let me now address a a few various things um, and and give a couple more thoughts before we actually get in uh, to the discourse. First, know this and keep it in mind uh, before you make a judgment, right? Don't shut me out. Don't shut me out yet. Maybe you will. I hope you won't. But just listen. Much of the language of this chapter is full of Old Testament illusion. That is illusion, ALL. not illusion like it's fake, but illusion, right? References, callbacks. This sounds like something that we see in the Old Testament. It's got a lot of Old Testament illusions and flavor to it. Remember Jesus is a Jew. He's speaking to Jews in the first century who were, pretty, who were better or more, more well acquainted with the Old Testament than we are, or most of us anyway. This is full of Old Testament allusion and flavor, as well as Old Testament prophetic language and apocalyptic imagery. And you say, what's apocalyptic imagery? Apocalyptic imagery is word pictures. Read Ezekiel, it's full of apocalyptic imagery. Read the book of Revelation, full of apocalyptic imagery. Symbolic language, word pictures. And many people miss this, that, that this chapter is full of that kind of stuff. I know that I did until recently. And it's probably because of that that so many interpreters, in my humble opinion, mishandle this text. But I will seek to remedy that for us as we walk through this chapter so that we can see more clearly that our Lord was prophesying in light of Old Testament language and categories and also in light of the history of redemption. Second thing, this interpretation is not the test of Christian orthodoxy. (laughs) It's not. Godly men disagree on this passage, and they are still our brothers in the Lord. But know this, not all godly men can be correct. Someone's got to be right. Or maybe maybe everyone's wrong, but not everyone can be right. So, and therefore, we have to think deeply and come to conclusions. So, uh, third, this is also not the test of membership in this church. You're free to disagree with me. If, by looking at the scriptures, you believe that I'm mishandling it here. I am open to being challenged. Fourth, this is also not the test of Christian maturity. What I mean by Christian maturity, some people say, well, if you don't see what I see, then you must just not be as mature as I am in my understanding of Christianity. Foolishness. That's foolishness. Uh, There are men whose lives I would look at and say, man, I want to be half of the Christian that that man is who would ferociously disagree with me on how I interpret this text, right? For real. So what I'm getting at is this. This text is tough, and therefore we should be gracious to those with whom we disagree concerning its interpretation paraphrase Charles Spurgeon, if you disagree with me this morning, don't go home and have roast pasta for lunch. (laughs) Be gracious with those whom you disagree. So many people get nasty about this text. They do. Even, Even dudes who I've read that I really wholeheartedly agree with their interpretation will get just downright nasty in their commentaries with people who disagree with them. We're not going to do that in this congregation. We're going to have unity on the essentials. That's what we're going to do. Let me give one final word of introduction. Um, I always used to understand or rather used to struggle to understand the Olivet discourse. Everything seemed just murky and as I read various interpretations they seemed forced and they seemed to be at odds with other parts of scripture and even some of the very words found in this text. But since I've come to this understanding, this partial preterist interpretation, it's like it's like God gave me a key and I can unlock this chapter and it makes sense now right? Like it's actually understandable now. And I aim to share with you what I've learned so that you might better understand the scriptures. So with all that said, here's what we're going to do this morning. First, we're going to consider verses one through four to get the context of the rest of the passage. And then we're going to look at verse 30 and see how it combined with verses four th- or verses one through four control how we should interpret the discourse. And then we'll consider verse 32 and how our Lord transitions from talking about the destruction of the temple to then speaking of his second coming at the end of history. So, let's begin by considering where we find ourselves in Mark's gospel. What kind of events have led up to this chapter? Right, first, you'll remember that Jesus has faced opposition from the religious rulers of Israel since chapter 2. They have been plotting how to murder Jesus since the beginning of his public ministry they've rejected him from the start, and even the people as a whole uh, have not responded to Christ in faith, right? Now listen, he, he at this time was a famous healer and a famous teacher, but it seems that very few have actually come to believe that he is the Messiah and Son of God. So by and large, he has been rejected by Israel. But our Lord for three years now has been fighting the religious establishment of Israel. And in the last two chapters we've been in, chapters 11 and 12, leading up to this discourse, we see our Lord giving hints at what's going to happen to Israel because they've rejected him. Let me review some of them. First, in chapter 11, you'll remember Jesus cursed the fig tree. And that this was a prophetic miracle of sorts. The fig tree represented Israel, right? It was an established Old Testament symbol for the nation. And Jesus cursed the fig tree. Why? Because it looked beautiful and it looked like it should have fruit on it but it didn't have any fruit it was nothing but leaves in the same way the nation of israel had produced no spiritual fruit but was full of wickedness and unbelief and so just as the fig tree was cursed by christ and withered under his judgment so also israel was going to be judged by him and wither a second thing in mark chapter 11 verse 18 After Jesus cleanses the temple and and runs the money changers out, we read of how the religious rulers were looking for a way to destroy him. They were looking for a way to kill him. The rejection continues despite his warnings. And then in chapters 11 and 12 that we've been in for the last eight weeks or so, we see how the chief priests, the elders, the scribes, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees, this is the entire religious establishment, all take turns arguing with Jesus and challenging him and trying to set a trap for him that they might accuse him. And at the offset of it all, at the beginning of chapter 12, in response to one of their questions, Jesus tells a parable. It's the parable of the wicked tenants. You'll remember in that parable, the tenants were given authority over the vineyard and they abused it. And whenever it was time to give the fruits of the vineyard to the father, the owner, they would not do so. So then the father sent his son and they murdered his son. And what, is, what happens as a result? The father slaughtered them all and gave the vineyard to others who would give him the fruit. This was a prophetic parable about how the religious rulers were going to kill the Son of God and how they would then be mercilessly judged for it. And now, after going back and forth with these unbelieving Jewish rulers, these men who hate him, these men who reject him, these men who want him dead, after spending all day arguing with them and three years fighting against them, our Lord leaves the temple. He leaves his own temple, doesn't he? He's God. He leaves his own temple. As Malachi had prophesied, the Lord came to his temple. And he saw all that was wrong with it. And now he's leaving. Mark writes in verse 1, and as he came out of the temple, he leaves. And he's never coming back. He will never bodily return to the temple, ever. The next time, after Mark 13, the next time that we read about the temple in Mark's narrative, you will read about how the temple veil was torn in two. That's the next time you'll read about it. He never goes back. God leaves his temple. Jesus leaves. And Matthew chapter 23, verse 38 tells us some of Jesus' final words before departing. Here they are. See, your house is left to you desolate. Catch that. Don't miss that. Your house. The temple. Your house is left to you desolate. He was speaking to the scribes. He was speaking to the religious rulers when he said those words. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, this reminds us of what happened in Israel's history, doesn't it? Before the Babylonian exile, when the temple was utterly destroyed and burned down, and the Jews were taken off into captivity for their idolatry, God left his temple. Ezekiel chapter 10, verses 18 and 19. Then the glory of the Lord went out from the threshold of the house. And stood over the cherubim. And the cherubim lifted up their wings and mounted up from the earth before my eyes as they went out with the wheels beside them. And they stood at the entrance of the east gate of the house of the Lord, and the glory of the God of Israel was over them. In the Old Testament, Ezekiel saw a vision where God left the temple. You've heard this phrase God wrote Ichabod over the temple. That means the glory has departed. God left his temple, and now Jesus leaves the temple. God the Son leaves the temple. History is repeating itself, and that does not bode well for Israel. Destruction looms in the distance. The temple is no longer God's house. The temple is no longer God's house. Your house, he says to the scribes, it's your house now. Your house is left to you desolate. That is empty. God's not here anymore. The place is corrupt. There are few believers left in Israel. If you guys remember the book of Leviticus, here we go. As the Old Testament law teaches, the high priest, Jesus Christ, has inspected the house twice now. There have been two temple cleansings, and the corruption has not gone away. Now what happens? You tear it down. That's what the law says. The priest looks at the house twice. If the corruption is still there, you tear it down. The great high priest Jesus Christ has went to his house twice and says the corruption remains tear it down there will be judgment on the temple there will be judgment on Jerusalem the city that kills the prophets and rejects the son of god there will be judgment on the nation of Israel why because they did not recognize their king God is finished with the religious system of Israel. He's done with the temple. He's done with the sacrifices. He's done with the priesthood. He's done with it all. And now only judgment remains because they rejected the Savior, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Our Lord has prophesied, pictured, and promised this in shadows, but now he's going to speak clearly about it. So Jesus leaves the temple, but as he's leaving, one of his disciples comes to him and says, Look, teacher... What wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings, right? So an unnamed disciple, I'm curious which one it was, but we don't know. An unnamed disciple points out the beauty of the structure of the temple. So this is the entire temple complex. And listen, it was, it was beautiful. I've read some, some ancient historical accounts. It was beautiful. There was one rabbi that said, you have not seen a beautiful building until you have seen the temple. and it it was. We we, we probably can't imagine how beautiful that it was, especially, hear me, especially in the eyes of a first century Jew, right? It's like we have stuff to compare a big, beautiful building to because we see them, right? We have pictures, we have the internet. Imagine a first century Jew. You've never seen anything like this before, (laughs) right? This is one of like the ancient wonders of the world, so to speak. It was made of white marble and covered with gold, not to mention all of the Gold ornamentation that's all over everything, and the precious stones that decorated it, and the large columns, beautiful storehouses, all the rest. It was a beautiful place, right? And it was huge. Some of the foundation stones were up to 37 feet long, 12 feet tall, and 18 feet wide. You could fit like maybe two of them in here. Huge building. Monstrous. And that's not to mention how subjectively beautiful. Right, in the eye of the beholder, how subjectively beautiful this place would have been in the mind of a Jew. This is God's house. Right? This is the place of worship, the place of sacrifice, where the priests are, where the choir sings, where we come to worship every year. Right, This is subjectively beautiful. So on many levels, the disciple sees beauty when he looks at the temple. And the disciple probably points out the magnificence of the temple because Jesus has just declared the temple is no longer God's house. He's probably shocked, like not probably, he's shocked, right? Look at this place, Jesus, right? It's glorious. How can it be? Your house, how is it not God's house anymore? This is God's place. Surely God would not forsake such a beautiful place. You see, the disciple only sees the outward glory and beauty of the buildings, but Jesus sees down to the core. And where the disciple sees beauty, Jesus sees corruption and wickedness and unbelief. And that leads us to the Lord's prophecy concerning the fate of the temple in verse 2. And Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Now we read this and it doesn't shock us, right? We're familiar with it. We've read this a bunch, but this is a huge prophecy. It's huge and it's shocking. Jesus has just said the temple is going to be utterly destroyed. So much so that not even one stone will be left upon another. And just real quick, if immediately you're thinking of the wailing wall in Jerusalem, that wasn't part of the temple. That was part of the substructure outside of the temple, right? So that wailing wall, Jesus wasn't wrong. He said not one stone will be left on top of another. The whole thing was to be raised to the ground. The temple with all of its pomp and outward beauty and riches and ceremony is going to be ruined. Please hear me. Remember chapter 12. They've rejected the cornerstone and now not one stone will be left on top of another. Because of their rejection, there will be judgment. They have rejected the Savior and now there is no one left to save them from the judgment of Almighty God. Dear congregation, please hear me. A bit of application for you. This is the fate of everyone who rejects Jesus. Judgment and ruin. There's nothing left. There's nothing left without the Savior but judgment. And, you know, this destruction of the temple was actually prophesied in the Old Testament. Uh, Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament in our Bibles, Malachi had said that Elijah, the forerunner to the Messiah, would come. And Elijah would turn the hearts of the people back to God. And if he was not successful, this is the final verses of Malachi, if Elijah is not successful, God will strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Now, Jesus mentioned this back in Mark chapter 9, verse 13. He made an allusion to it. And Elijah did come, didn't he? Jesus says John the Baptist was Elijah who had been prophesied, metaphorically, right? Literally, Elijah was never to come. But John the Baptist was Elijah. And John the Baptist was the forerunner of Jesus, the Messiah. And what happened to John? Did he turn the hearts of the people back to God? No. They rejected him, and he got his head cut off. Jesus said, what they did to John, they're going to do to me. They rejected John, they'll reject me. And they would reject Jesus, even to the point of death on a cross. And so what does that leave them with? The threat of destruction that Malachi had said. He said, Elijah will turn the hearts of the people, lest I strike the land with a ban. That's the only thing that's left now. They rejected Elijah and they rejected the Messiah. And now only ruin awaits them. It is a terrifying thing to reject Jesus Christ. You will leave yourself with nothing but your sin and the judgment due to you for it. And that's what we see pictured here. But now the scene changes. Jesus has just somewhat publicly Right? Because they charge him for saying this later. So we know they heard him say this. While he was leaving the temple, he says, the building's coming down. And now the scene changes. It's now private. We read this, verses 3 and 4. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately. Right, So Jesus goes east of the temple to the Mount of Olives. By the way, if you're wondering, this is why we call it the Olivet Discourse. It was on Mount Olivet that Jesus gave it. But he goes east of the temple to a mountain. Again, this reminds us of Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 11, verse 23, we read, And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain that is on the east side of the city. In the Old Testament, before the temple was destroyed, God's glory left the temple and went to a mountain on the east side of the city. That is the Mount of Olives. Jesus goes to the same place. And so now we see the Son of God, who is the glory of God, going to the same mountain. The parallels are not an accident, brothers and sisters. There is one author of Scripture, ultimately. So when you see parallels and allusions, it's not an accident. God wants us to see that His judgment is coming just like it did in the past. And Jesus sits opposite the temple with His disciples. Now, this could just be a passing remark, or Mark maybe wants us to see something. He's opposite the temple he's over against the temple. He's opposed to it in a sense, right? He's facing off against the temple, so to speak. think about, this makes us think of a boxing poster, right? Or like a UFC poster, you know, talking about where they're facing off against each other and it's one versus the other. I think that that's what we see here. He's opposite the temple. It's as if he's squaring up with them. Here we see the temple versus the Lord of the temple, We see apostate Judaism versus the judge of all the earth. Here is the temple. Here is Christ on Mount Olivet. Either way, whether it's a passing thing or we're meant to see more, the temple was in clear view as Jesus gives this discourse. Don't forget that. The temple would have dominated the backdrop of the disciples as Jesus gives his prophecy about what's going to happen in the future. And now we come to the question of the disciples. Verse four, it's in two parts but it's about the same thing. Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? This is the spark of the entire discourse. This question of the disciples is what sets the whole thing off. Right? It is therefore of extreme importance for us to understand if we're going to grasp this passage. Right? Again, their question is the immediate context. Bear with me. It is the immediate context for everything that Jesus is going to say after this. Remember that for the weeks to come. This is important. And, and their question, in the words of R.T. France, has to do with the end of the old order. They ask, and me read it again, When will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? Boil it down to this. When and what will be the sign? What are they referring to? clearly they are referring to what jesus just said in verse two jesus told them that the temple was going to be destroyed and then they say when and what will be the sign i i, I there's going to be a few times where i'm like laboring a point and you're going to say well, why that's pretty simple i'm laboring the point because you got to see this there's nothing else that they could be referring to in the context there's nothing else They understand what Jesus is talking about, and they believe him, by the way. Just real quick, there's some application for you. Jesus says, this temple is going down, and they say, when? (laughs) They don't say, no way. They say, yeah, when's that going to happen? They believe it. They understood what he said, and they believe him, and they want to know when it will happen and if there are going to be signs about when it's going to happen, signs that precede it. Now, real quick, some of you would wonder, why do they ask about these things in the plural when Jesus has only referred to one event, which is the destruction of the temple, why do they refer to a plurality of things? I think that, and there are different answers you could give, but I think that naturally this one huge event would be comprised of many smaller events. Right? If one stone is not to be left on top of another, this is going to be something of a process. So I think it's natural for them to say, when will all these things be? And notice that this is all That Mark records them asking. Sinclair Ferguson pointed this out in his commentary, and I appreciated it. It's the only thing that Mark records them asking. Now Matthew records more, and I'll I'll get to that in a minute. But this is it that Mark says. Just these questions. So clearly, then, the focus of the majority of the rest of of this chapter is going to be on answering their question, because this is the only question Mark records. In other words, the vast majority of what Mark records for us here has to do with the destruction of the temple. Now, if you don't see this, and as some of our dispensationalist brothers would say, you believe that this entire discourse is only about the end times, then you would have to say that Jesus completely ignores their question. Some people actually argue that, and it kind of made me laugh when I read that. Yeah, Jesus ignores their question and starts talking about the end. I was like, really? Because every other time that the disciples ask him a question in the gospel, he an- Gospels, he answers it. Right? If you say that this whole discourse is only about the end, then it doesn't have any continuity with what came before it whatsoever. And that's very strange. Again, Jesus always answers their questions. Now listen, he may say more than they asked. He may give them more information than they originally asked, but he always answers their question. So there's no reason to believe that it's not happening here in this text. He's answering their question. So Mark only records their question about the temple being destroyed. Okay? When and what signs? But Matthew records more than Mark at this point. Right? And this is where we have to use the whole Bible. Right? We let scripture interpret scripture. Matthew records more than Mark here. Matthew chapter 24 verse 3 says this. Tell us when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So Matthew records two major questions. The first is about the destruction of the temple. When will these things be? Second, what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? A question about the coming of Christ. It's a second question, or the word there, and know this, it'll be important. Parousia is the word for coming there, The parousia of Jesus. Now, why do I mention that? Well, that word, that Greek word parousia, is something of a technical word in the Bible for the second coming of Christ. It's used 24 times in the New Testament, and only a few uses within two contexts is it questionable what it means. Every other time, it's rather clear it's talking about the second coming of Christ. So Matthew records two questions. One, what about the temple destruction? When? Two, what about your second coming in the end of the age? Now, Mark does not record the second question. And I ask, why? Only God knows. I have no idea why Mark does not record the second question. Personally, And I don't mean this to sound disrespectful. I find it frustrating that Mark did not record both questions. But God inspired him to do so, so who am I to tell God how to inspire his own book? Right? Mark doesn't record both questions. Maybe Matthew was written first, and Mark is giving the summary. But regardless, Matthew records a question about the second coming of Jesus. Now, why? There's a question for you. If Jesus has only mentioned the destruction of the temple, why would the disciples ask about the end of the age? Why would they ask about the end of human history or the end of the messianic age that Jesus has brought in? Why would they ask about that? I think history helps us here. You see, in Jewish thinking of the time, that I'm not just blowing smoke, we have this documented, these are ancient rabbinical sources and commentaries. In Jewish thinking of the time, there was a belief that the temple would last until the end of the world. Right? That, that's in Jewish tradition. That is in some of their interpretations of psalms that talk about the temple and it being everlasting. They were being quite literal um, in their interpretation of it. So, again, to the disciples then, if the temple is gone, the world must be over. Make sense? If the temple's gone, then the world must come to an end. So they put those two things together in their minds, the destruction of the temple and their theology about the temple, and out comes these two questions. I think that makes sense. They cannot conceive of a world where the temple is not being used. <laughs> they cannot conceive of a world since the Babylonian exile where God does not want a temple. Right? It doesn't fit into their thinking, and that's why they ask both questions in Matthew. Jesus said the temple's coming down. So when's it coming down, and when's the world coming to an end? Because they have to happen together in their minds. In light of all this, I will argue that the Olivet Discourse is going to answer both questions. I believe that Mark's account answers both questions, even though the second one is not recorded. And I'll defend that before we're done here today. So again, the first question that Mark records has to do with the destruction of the temple, and that will be answered in verses 5 through 30. The second question that Matthew records has to do with Christ's second coming in the end of the age, and that will be answered in verses 32 through 37. Now, some of you are saying, huh? Let me con- let's consider two more verses uh, that will be even further controls for the proper interpretation of this chapter. Bear with me. I said you're going to have to think. I warned you ahead, ahead of time it was going to be a long sermon. You'll be all right. We turn now to verse 30. Mark 1330, it is often referred to as the time text of the Olivet Discourse. So this is going to give us a huge interpretive grid for how we should interpret everything that comes before. Verse 30, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. I believe that verse answers the first question. The answer to the when question in verse 4. When? This generation. When will all these things be? When will the temple be destroyed? And Jesus plainly says that all these things will take place before this generation passes away. Now, again, I'm going to feel kind of silly here. What is Jesus talking about when he says all these things? Quite simply, he is speaking about everything he said in the discourse up to this point. The disciples ask a question in verse 4 about these things taking place, and these things refer to the destruction of the temple. It was the only thing that made sense in light of verse 2. And Jesus began to answer their question in verse 5 and following. Again, I recommend look at verses 2 through 4 again. The destruction of the temple is the only thing mentioned. And Jesus' phrase in verse 30 about these things matches the disciples' question in verse 4 about these things that have to do with the destruction of the temple. They wanted to know what signs would happen before and when it would happen. And Jesus says, these things will happen in this generation. There's not much more to say here, right? These things refers to everything Jesus says in verses 5 through 30, because those things are the signs of the destruction of the temple. But what about this generation? This is where people will fight, right? What does this generation mean? Some people make different arguments. They'll say, well, it refers to uh, the Jewish race, that generation, like the Jews will exist until the end of the world, or the generation that lives to see Jesus return will not pass away. Some people will say that. That's what I used to think. Um, But listen, what does this generation mean? Uh, Listen, it it means the generation of people then living that Jesus was speaking to. That's what it means. What Jesus has said up to this point will happen within that then living generation. That's literally what he says it's the most literal way to take it right now, now I'll, I'll submit this to you and I'm going to sound like a jerk for a moment but whatever if it wasn't for the popularity of the left behind books and the theology that comes with it that many of us grew up with this would not require any real defense or explanation this generation means that exactly that this generation let me defend that now Mark consistently uses the phrase this way Mark chapter 12, or rather, Mark chapter 8, verse 12, chapter 8, verse 38, and chapter 9, verse 19 are all examples of Jesus using this phrase, this generation. Let me read one example so that you can see. Mark chapter 8, verse 12, and he, Jesus, sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. Now, everybody, every Bible interpreter you read agrees that our Lord was saying that he refused to work another sign to satisfy the vain curiosity of the unbelieving Pharisees. And when were those Pharisees alive? Then, in that generation, he's talking about them, this generation will not receive a sign. And listen, all of Mark's uses of this phrase means the same thing. Not only that, but Matthew uses the phrase in eight different places by my count, and they were all used to refer to the generation that was living in Jesus' day. Please hear me. If you read these verses in any other way, you will make them impossible to understand. They absolutely won't make sense anymore. This generation means the generation then living. It means what it means. And again, I know maybe you're thinking, why are you laboring this point? It's because people differ on this. He clearly says what he says. Again, so when we see Jesus using this phrase throughout the Gospels, he's talking about the generation that he is currently speaking to. So there is no reason to try and make it mean something else. And please hear me. The only reason I think that people try to make that phrase, this generation, mean something else is because they are being one overly literal in their interpretation of portions of things that Jesus says in verses 5 through 30, and, and therefore they make it impossible for Jesus to have meant this generation, or they have a pre commitment to a theological tradition that forces them to understand it differently. And that would be like our dispensational friends. Furthermore, and this was fun, this one's here's the, you ready? Like if I lost you, here's the easy one that might make you laugh a little bit. If Jesus is referring to his second coming in a future generation, he would have said that generation, not this one. He would have said that one and not this one. There are different words for each phrase. It's not a confusion in the Greek. He could have said that, but instead he said this. And the word this in Greek means something like near at hand, the one near to me. It's called a near demonstrative If you're getting into the linguistics of it, it refers to nearness. Again, my dear brothers and sisters, Jesus is speaking about the generation close to him. That is the only thing that fits here. So, no, in our interpretation of this text, we will not do biblical gymnastics to try and undo what Jesus says here in verse 30. He says, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place, and we are going to take him at his word and deal with this passage in light of those words. We're going to let the Bible interpret the Bible. We're going to look at the Old Testament and its prophetic judgment language. And we're going to look at the New Testament historical record about things like you're wondering, what about the gospel being preached in all the world? Read Romans chapter 1 and talk to me about that again. We're going to use the New Testament historical record, and we're going to interpret everything with the whole Bible as our guide. Jesus said that everything he said up to this verse will happen in that generation then living. Therefore, we will interpret everything in light of what he said. He gave us the perimeters perimeter to interpret this passage, and we must follow his lead lest we call him a liar or a false prophet. And just real quick, I'm getting off my notes here. Um, liberal, liberal scholars and liberal theologians love this verse, verse 30, because they'll say, they, they will argue that this passage is about the second coming of Christ, up to verse 30, which again, I reject that view. But they'll say, if this is all about his second coming, boom, verse 30 says it would happen within that generation, and he was wrong. Therefore, Christianity is false. But, what if I told you there's a way to interpret verses 5 through 30 that where they all happened in the first century? That's what I'm going to submit to you, because Jesus says Everything that he said up to that verse had to happen in the first century. So we're going to interpret him in light of his own words. This time text provides us with the proper grid to interpret everything. And listen, please hear me. If you don't know history very well, indeed, what our Lord said would happen, happened. In AD 70, the Roman army destroyed Jerusalem. Jerusalem was razed to the ground. There were 1.1 million Jews killed Within four years, from AD 66 to AD 70, 1.1 million Jews were slaughtered by the Romans. The temple was completely torn to the ground. As it burned, some of the gold that was on the temple actually melted down into the cracks on the marble to the point where the Roman armies were busting the marble slabs apart to get the gold. Literally not one stone was left upon another in the temple. There are awful stories. I recommend to you Josephus' wars. He was a first century scholar or first century uh, historian who was alive to see it go down. Read it. There's chilling accounts in there of the famines and the wars and everything that we read about Jesus talking. Horrible, chilling stuff. Josephus actually said that once the Romans were finished, it did not look like Jerusalem had ever been inhabited. The destruction was awful, just like Jesus said it would be. And it happened within that generation, 40 years after Jesus said it would happen. He is truly the great prophet, priest, and king, just as he said he would. So Jesus has answered the disciples' question that they asked in verse 4, and he's done so in verses 5 through 30. But hang with me, we're not done, because Jesus isn't done teaching. So what does he continue to talk about? What more is there to answer? He answered their question up to verse 30. Well, remember Matthew's question. The question recorded for us in Matthew's gospel about the second coming and the end of the age. I think that that's what Mark is recording Jesus speaking about, even though he doesn't record the question at the beginning. I'm going to attempt to defend that now. I know I've been up here for a while. We all watch movies. You're going to be fine. The Bible is more interesting than than all the flicks you watch. I almost said Braveheart, but you guys tell me no one watches Braveheart anymore. It's because you're awful. Braveheart's one of the best movies of all time. You have got to fast forward a certain scene in the beginning. But other than that, it's good. Uh, anyhow, yeah, there was your little break for a second. I know this is kind of like a lecture, but it's fine. You need to know these things. Let me at- attempt to defend now that verses 32 through 37 have to do with the second coming. This verse is often called the transition text of the Olivet Discourse. Verse 32. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. I believe that there is a change of subject here. Let me explain. The Greek here for but concerning is peri-day, right? P-E-R-I space D-E. That's how you anglicize it. And that phrase, but concerning, signals a subject change in many places in the New Testament, especially in the Apostle Paul's letters. You guys read 1 Corinthians chapter 7? Now concerning your question about, again in chapter 7, now concerning, he switches subjects to talk about what do you do, uh, peoples whose spouses have left them or died, who are they allowed to marry? Boom, he switches subjects. Now concerning, chapter 8. Now concerning meat sacrifice to idols. Chapter 12. Now concerning spiritual gifts, right? So it's, it's a subject change. Anytime you read, but concerning, now concerning, that phrase in the Greek, peri day is a subject change. And again, we, this is exactly how Jesus introduces verse 32. But concerning. So there's a subject change. Particularly, A change from speaking about those things that will occur in this generation, verse 30, and Jesus looking forward to something that will happen in the future. That is his second coming or his parousia. A second argument. In verses 5 through 30, catch this, Jesus speaks of those days in the plural, doesn't he? Those days, plural, five times. And these things, plural, twice. But in verse 32, Jesus speaks about that day that day, singular, one specific day, as opposed to a bunch of days. And in Scripture, especially in the New Testament, that day or a single specific day often refers to the day of judgment, the second coming of Christ. So it seems that Jesus is speaking of that day when he shifts from the plural of days and things to the singular day. I feel like that's pretty compelling. A third thing, I have more than just these three things, but I'm, I am trying to go short. Uh, in verse 30, Jesus speaks of the fact that he knows that what he has prophesied up to that point will occur within the generation then living. He knows this generation will not pass away. But in verse 32, our Lord says, he doesn't know when that day or that hour will come. So he seems to be talking about something different. right? Something that according to his human nature, he did not know then versus something that he did know. So Jesus shifted from a subject in verse 30, that he knew when it would happen to a subject that he does not know when it's going to happen in verse 32. In other words, he knew when the temple would be destroyed, but with regard to his human nature, he did not know when he was going to come again bodily. So then taking all of this together, I believe that there is a definite transition in topics beginning in verse 32. Therefore, once again, I think that verses 5 through 30 have to do with the destruction of the temple that was fulfilled in eighty seventy, but verse 32 begins our Lord's words about his bodily return at the end of the age. Whew. That's been a lot. That's been a lot. I've been up here for 57 minutes. This is a lot. Um, for some of you, this sermon has probably felt like drinking from a fire hose. <laughs> right? I get it. I get it. And some of you are wondering, how in the world... This is how I felt when I first heard this. How in the world do some of the words in in verses 5 through 30 find fulfillment in the first century? The trumpets being blasted and the angels going out to the four corners of the earth and gathering the elect. The gospel being preached to all nations. The abomination of desolation. How in the world are those those to be interpreted so they find a first century fulfillment? Well, that's a good question. And we don't have time today, but we're going to get there. Stick around for the next two months. We're going to answer those questions. But for now, I hope that you can all see just a few things. One, this passage has to do with Jesus' judgment that was going to come upon Israel. I hope you can see that the Olivet Discourse is Jesus' answer to the question of his disciples. I hope you can see clearly that Jesus says those things would happen within that generation. And I hope you can see that there is a clear subject change beginning in verse 32 where Jesus starts talking about his second coming. That was my goal this morning. Now, I imagine that this sermon has not felt too sermony. It hasn't. I made up a word there. It's not. It doesn't feel too sermony here, Dave. Right? Usually, I'm appealing to your heart. Right? That's it's preaching. Uh, this this sermon has had many components of a lecture. But please, please hear me. My job is to teach you the word of God, and sometimes that requires a very close attention to detail. Not only that, but I want to prove the things that I say from the pulpit. And not make you take my word for it. Telling you take my word for it is how you start a cult. And I'm not down with that. That's not what we're going to do. I want to prove the things that I say. And you should demand that I prove the things that I say. So then in light of all of this, what personal application can be made from the text? I have two things. I won't be much longer. First, this sermon has probably challenged most of you (laughs) in how you read this chapter. And no doubt, the sermons that follow, Lord willing, are going to continue to do so. And so here, I think, is a good piece of application for you to keep in mind. Allow yourself to be challenged, because sometimes we're wrong. Allow yourself to be challenged. Search the scriptures and pray that God would open your mind and heart to understand and believe what you read. Please hear me. We don't come to the scriptures and get to impose our meaning upon them. We don't. That's called eisegesis, and it's evil. We don't do that. We don't get to impose our meaning on the text. Rather, we come to the Scriptures with a desire to know the mind of God. And so we let the book say what it says, not what we want it to say. There's a quote taped here at the, of the pulpit. that's to remind me and Steve and David, anyone else who would stand behind here, R.C. Sproul, you are required to believe, to preach, and to teach Whatever the Bible says is true, not what you want the Bible to say is true. That's how we come to the book. Brothers and sisters, we do not pledge allegiance to a certain tradition. Our allegiance is to the scriptures. And whenever we are corrected by the scriptures with regard to our interpretation or our living or our doctrine, no matter how many people may agree with us or how many people may say that it's good and fine, if the scriptures contradict us, we must submit to the scriptures. So take that with you this morning. But a second thing, because I must preach the gospel of Jesus Christ or I have not done my job. A second and final thing to reflect on this Lord's Day has to do with judgment. Don't miss Jesus' pronouncement of judgment in verse 2. And don't miss why. Israel was going to be judged because they rejected the Savior and stayed in their sin. And the earthly judgment of the temple is but a foreshadowing of what happens to all who would reject the Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing but ruin and judgment. But know this, please hear me this morning, be encouraged. Jesus Christ did not come into the world to damn it. He came into the world to save it. John 3, 16 and 17 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. He didn't come to judge, he came to save. He is coming again in judgment. But he came to save to save us from the judgment of God and condemnation that we deserve for our sins. And he did so in his life, death, and resurrection. By his life, he lived righteously before God, so that through faith in him, we might receive his righteousness. In his death, he was punished as if he had committed our sins, so that by his blood, we might be cleansed and made righteous in the eyes of God, having been cleansed by his atonement. And in his resurrection, he was raised to life and justified, the text says in Romans. He was declared righteous by God in his resurrection. Not guilty. He has not sinned. And by virtue of his resurrection, we receive the same verdict through faith in him. By his life, death, and resurrection, Jesus came to save sinners, not damn them. He came to save them. He came to save those who only deserve hell. And he promises this salvation and this life to all who trust in him. So I tell you now, as a minister of his gospel, trust him because he came to save sinners. And know this, he's coming again. He's coming again. Don't misunderstand me. We're going to be focusing on the destruction of the temple, but he is coming again. He is on that great day that he spoke of. That day he will return as we confess in the Nicene Creed to judge both the living and the dead. He will judge and damn the unbelieving, but he will save and grant eternal bliss to the believing. And hear me, the only way to be ready for that day is to trust in him. And please hear me, I don't believe in the rapture. I'm not telling you to be ready for the rapture. I believe in the second coming, but not the rapture. I'm not telling you, you need to be ready, so you need to trust in him. No, he will judge the living and the dead. You may be dead when he comes. Your death is actually much more likely than his second coming is in your lifetime, in my opinion. And the only way to be ready to face him in the judgment on that great day, whenever it may be, is to trust in him now. And the words of Stephen Lawson, tomorrow is the devil's day, but today is the day of salvation. Trust in him and be prepared to meet your God. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for your word that strikes our hearts, that reminds us that you are a God that judges and your judgment is terrifying. But God, we thank you for Jesus Christ who has bore our sin and guilt and offers salvation and life and hope to all who would trust in him. God, I pray that you would open us to receive that truth. If everything else I've said this morning is false, that is true. And I pray that you would grip our hearts with the fact that Christ lived, died, and was raised to save sinners. And that he's coming again in glory. Help us to look forward to that day through faith in him. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.